You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. In episode 108 of the podcast, I interviewed David Bentley Hart about a number of concerns about Christian universalism raised by Father James Dominic Rooney. Today, I'm pleased to have Jordan Daniel Wood with us to react to some of the issues raised in that interview. Jordan has his Ph.D. in historical theology from Boston College. His first book has just been released by the University of Notre Dame Press. The title is The Whole Mystery of Christ, Creation as Incarnation in Maximus Confessor. I've just finished reading Jordan's epic contribution to scholarship on Maximus Confessor, which is relevant because the issue of whether or not Maximus Confessor was a universalist is raised by James Dominic Rooney. So, Jordan Daniel Wood, welcome back to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thanks for having me, David. It's great to be back. Well, Jordan, in my interview with David Bentley Hart about James Dominic Rooney's concerns about Christian universalism, several interesting points of discussion were raised. And I want to start with one of James Dominic Rooney's fundamental claims, which is that the consensus tradition of Christianity in both the Western and Eastern Church has now definitively ruled out Christian universalism for modern Christianity. Although there may have been examples of a Christian theology of universal salvation in the early centuries, the consensus is now that Christian universalism is out of bounds, and therefore it is heretical for all Christians now to believe that God will ultimately save all. So how would you respond to that? Yeah, so I think, um, I mean... I'll start, I guess, with a few clarifying uh, points about my own perspective and approach to this. I don't think that's true. (laughs) Clearly, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be Catholic and also somebody who holds uh, confidently in the universalist hope if I thought otherwise. I also wouldn't be struggling to try to reconcile this uh, if I thought otherwise as well. I mean, to the best of my knowledge, well, uh, before I get into that, I'll just say that I um, I think sometimes in these polemics and in these sort of exchanges that we see online or in Twitter or even a certain mode of thinking that you might call an analytic Thomist way of thinking, it's very attractive and often very, um, I think, polemically or rhetorically useful to, to uh, I think, oversimplify matters and cover over things that really are Uh, actually crucial to all these discussions and kind of haunt the discussions, but they don't usually get addressed because we want to use like isms. We want to use categories. We want to, we want to talk about soft versus hard universalism. We want to talk about annihilationism, et cetera, et cetera. And we want to also pretend by the way, that everybody that supposedly fits into that box believes the same things about a whole host of other things so -hmm. that you've got this monolith that you can then eventually reduce to this or that or entire set, say, of heresies. So you want to you want to play the game in such such a way that it's what's called a reductio ad absurdum, which, of course, can be done properly. I'm not saying that that's always wrong or always bad. But at the same time, I do think the impulse to do that 
has this risk or flaw in its feature or design, which is that it oversimplifies things. So, uh, for example, even, you know, because you've linked it back to David Hart's uh, interview with you, it's perhaps not evident if someone was listening to Father Rooney's uh, polemics that say, David, David and I don't even agree about everything. <laughs> you know, we, we don't we don't uh, execute our cases even the same way or we don't, you know, so there, there are differences, but you might not you might not get that. And I, I do get the sense, I should say, that very often when Father Rooney's talking about universalists and universalism, it basically seems to me that he's only ever talking about David Hart as he reads him. Um, and I think that's a pretty large mistake, not only because it looks over, um, you know, a lot of the, I think, salient and uh, uh, figures, uh, Christian universalist figures in the tradition from from Origen to St. Clement of Alexandria to St. Isaac, et cetera, et cetera, that a lot of people have probably heard about on your on your podcast over and over mm -hmm. again. But it also sort of seems to, it, it kind of insinuates that this is like a new discussion or all of the sudden there's this sort of incursion of heterodox or non-Christian thought um, into an otherwise fairly dominant, quote, consensus view or the traditional view of hell. Um, I'll point out, I think a little later, that Father Rooney's own version of hell is far from what I would call the consensus view in the tradition, actually very far from it. And so it's not as if one side is doing, uh, you know, just simply reporting or relaying or championing the consensus view. And the other side is sort of doing these creative synthesis tricks to try to fit their, uh, their own sentiments and opinions into the tradition. Father Rooney's own view is actually in some ways radically a departure from what I would call uh, the, the quote unquote consensus view of hell or of the afterlife in Christian tradition. We can get into some of the details later, but so mm -hmm. I want to make that qualifying mark at the far, at the, at the front. However, there is this difference. This is the second qualifying mark. I don't think that David Hart, I don't think that me or I, I haven't, I don't even think, I don't think you have, I don't think anybody really that I know of has come out and said, if you are not a universalist, you're a heretic. Um, we have said things like it's incoherent or I don't believe it, or I couldn't believe in a God like that, et cetera, et cetera, which is also a sort of a target of other Rooney's criticisms. Um, but I don't think anyone has said, <laughs> I don't, th that is a fundamental difference in the sort of disposition in the approach to this whole conversation. I think that's at least worth noting. Mm -hmm. I don't think that Father Rooney is a heretic for being just a soft universalist, which he is, and which I also don't think is the consensus view in Christian tradition. Uh, but yet it's one he's willing to defend, by the way, is soft universalism. I don't think it's been the majority or consensus view whatsoever to be a soft universalist. So he also is sort of doing something creative and synthetically. And yet, as he's doing that, trying to construct his own proposal, which is different, which in many ways departs from earlier major views in the tradition, he also at the same time wants to say that those that don't agree with the proposal, the creative proposal he's putting forward, is those are somehow outside of the bounds of orthodoxy or of, of licit speculative Christian thinking. In other words, they're sort of heretical or they're heretics or they're at least flirting with heresy or something. There's a certain way. That there's an, so, so there's so far I've made two qualifications. Yeah. Also, just just throw in that he's also just in conversations or if you can call them conversations back and forth on Twitter, he suggested, you know, that there is the, you know, the possibility that 
um, you could go to hell for being a universalist. Yeah, I think someone someone showed me uh, recently that he essentially post. I don't know. He posted something. I'm not. I try to stay off of social media as best I can. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, something like a Pascal's wager for this whole discussion, right? Which says, look, if the universalists are right, that makes me happy because then everyone will be in heaven, including me. But if they're wrong, you know, somehow, and this is the part where it gets very vague and, and I think distorting, honestly, and misleading and kind of, a, a, well, I'll just, I don't want to say it's in bad faith because I, to be honest with you, I really don't think Father Rooney is operating most of the time in bad faith. I think he's oper- operating under a, fundamentally what I would call a sort of apologetics mindset, which has inherent flaws that doesn't allow somebody to fully, uh, I think, empathize with uh, other views and also subtly but crucially distorts the presentation of other views for the sake of that polemical reduction Mm -hmm. to the absurdity, right? But anyway, so yeah, it's sort of like a Pascal, like, well, if the universalists are right, that's great, I'll just be happy. But if they're wrong, what? I mean, this is the question. So if being wrong about this means you will go to hell, or is the impl- implication or the insinuation that universalism encourages moral laxity, which will encourage sin, which will encourage separation from God, and you end up in hell? Or is it that you're presumptuous and, you, and you're prideful because you can claim to know, right? All these different things. Honestly, I want to say one thing about that point about presumption. I encourage anybody to read Father Sergei Bulgakov's spiritual diary, and and tell me honestly whether or not you think that man was uh, suffused with spiritual pride. <laughs> I can't, uh, I can't see it, or or uh, you know, uh, I, it's a it's a remarkable sort of claim, and so that 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 sort of raising the stakes, kind of as it were. Um, like there's there's a way in which you can argue that someone's speculative view leads to a dangerously heretical or 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 heretical in the sense of erroneous in the way a heretic before was erroneous. So, for example, just to take something from the Catholic world, since it's sort of a Catholic, uh, you know, back and forth here a little bit. Very often in Trinitarian theology, I've seen Thomas Decuse say the Franciscan or specifically Bonaventurian view of the uh, uh, this is going to sound very you know kind of in the weeds, but let's just let me just give this as an example. <laughs> I'm not going to get into all the details. I wrote a I wrote a, an article on it, but very often Thomas will will say that for certain reasons that like Bonaventure when he's work Saint Bonaventure when he's working out his Trinitarian theology, he basically ends up unwittingly supporting what you might call a semi eunomian view of the Father and the Son. I'm not getting into all the details of why that is, but it's a kind of like polemical, uh, maybe a potentially illuminating way to say Bonaventure's account of what makes what distinguishes the three persons of God, you know, in God, is is too close to the errors of Eunomius, which we've already dealt with, and so we should prefer Thomas Aquinas's account of what distinguishes the Father from the Son. Blah blah blah. Right. So there's a way in which you can say that. Now, I don't think anybody is seriously suggesting, even from the Thomas side, that if you do fall fall in with St. Bonaventure's Trinitarian theology, you are a heretic, right? So there's that use of her- her- heretical sort of boundary markers. Mm-hmm. But then there's the other one, and like that tweet we mentioned uh, from today, 
it's not just like because that kind of Pascalian wager approach isn't saying that. It isn't just saying, well, if you're a Christian universalist, you sort of seem to be repeating some of the errors that you could find in other, uh, you know, say other heretics, which, of course, I would say the same thing about uh, some of Father Rooney's own views. Um, but it's actually saying something more. It's saying something like the belief, the confident, not even just the belief, because he himself was a soft universalist. But like the a degree of confidence, which is too presumptuous or too extreme or too profound, I, I would rather say, um, somehow that in and of itself can lead you to hell. And so that's that's a kind of like, OK, we're not anymore in the analytic sort of parsing arguments and saying, you know, this is problematic for X and Y and Z reasons. Now we're just sort of blending over all of a sudden. And that's the problem with using her heresy as sort of the kind of, as it were, you know, lightning rods to say, watch out here. Look at what's happening. We're going down this path because so quickly you can t- it can turn into. In fact, you're, you're not only just entertaining the errors of heretics, but you yourself are sort of on the road to destruction. Um, I, 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 it's a hard pill to swallow to read someone like George MacDonald and say that man's on the on the road to destruction. It's a hard pill to swallow even to, to read someone like, I don't know, St. Isaac of Nineveh and say he's on the road to destruction. Or even St. Edith Stein and what she says in her work, World in Person, that is infinitely improbable, even though in principle possible for some to go to hell. She says in reality, it's infinitely improbable to believe that. I don't know if she's on her, on the road to destruction. I wouldn't I wouldn't want to say she is, or Sergei Bulgakov, or right, et cetera, et cetera, or Michel Corbin, who's a Jesuit theologian still alive, or Peter Knauer, a German Catholic theologian still alive. Are they all just on the road to destruction? So you see what so we're kind of back to the point too, by the way, of when Father Rooney's talking about universalism, he's typically just talking about the way he reads the especially the rhetoric, which he finds off putting, as do a lot of people, of David Hart. Um, and then he tries to get into some, uh, you know, some logical uh, uh, counterpoints to heart. But I, I just think that's that's already to sort of oversimplify the entire discussion. The last qualification I'll make uh, here is this. Rooney also likes to argue, and in fact, this is the first, where I first knew him from was a d- totally different argument that had nothing to do with Christian universalism, but this intra-Catholic argument about what's called Catholic integralism. Again, I don't need to get into all the details, but essentially it's a kind of like view that um, the best state or political order we ought to be um, striving for is one in which the church and the state are not separate. And in fact, perhaps like say 17th century French Catholic monarch uh, monarchy sort of uh, model is like something we should strive for rather than quote unquote, a liberal society, like a democratic republic or something, right? Uh, and Rooney, I think rightly, this is a, this is the time where I would agree with him, I'd be on his side, opposes that. He opposes that view for on theological and philosophical grounds. And so he actually, that's where I first saw him in action was arguing against these integralists online. And I was like, wow, mm-hmm. this is, you know, this is good. I like what he's saying. Um, but what I find relevant here is that Part of the thing that gives that whole discussion, which to I think a lot of normal everyday people would sound honestly kind of absurd, like that there are people promoting something like a return to 17th century Catholic monarchies um, in like in America <laughs> and that there's a Harvard law professor who's who's pushing for stuff like this. Um, 
I think I think though that part of what gives that that uh, the fuel to that fire is the fact that prior to Vatican II and and, and, and in fact prior to 1944 in particular, which was the first time a a pope or a, an official uh, church uh, like a, a leader of that stature had actually spoken positively of democracy. <laughs> um, that prior to, to that time, and certainly prior to Vatican II, it actually was the quote-unquote consensus traditional, Catholic traditional position to oppose human rights, uh, liberty of conscience, and religious freedom. And, for example, in 1892, uh, the church opposed what they called Americanism, right, which is, which is a sort of view of the separation of church and state, the liberal order, etc. So what's really interesting to me and fascinating just to note this, to step back here and just let's look at the optics. Father Rooney is now defending a position against these integralists, I think rightly so, that though his opponents could rightly say is not at all the consensus of the tradition. And that, and that, and that's what, that's what gives fuel to the fire. Is you can you can quote, for example, uh, Pope uh, Paul the or Pope Pius the sixth in seventeen ninety one opposing human rights. You can quote Gregory the sixteenth in the nineteenth century writing an encyclical criticizing religious liberty. And 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 and, and you know, <laughs> and they're using these. Pretty, pretty strong language, you know, the greatest stupidity, you know, these strange new affirmations, etc. right? And, and so all the way to the 1960s where you get to the, uh, the council, the Second Vatican Council, and you have someone like Cardinal Ottaviani. I know I'm getting a little bit into the Catholic weeds here. It doesn't, doesn't matter. Just this very uh, visible and public um, leader of a certain, what you might call, quote unquote, sort of a, a misnomer, but say a more conservative or traditionalist view, trying to put the brakes on what he perceived to be and what a lot of bishops perceived to be a loud minority, it turns out, uh, to perceive to be radical changes in the church's magisterial tradition. In other words, overturning what they took to be and had the receipts that they could quote and did quote from some of the popes I just mentioned and others. That what we're what what is in, ends up being said in *Humanae uh, 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 Dignitatis*, this this uh, constitution of the uh, of Second Vatican II, which does in fact link directly uh, human rights and, and specifically religious liberty with human dignity. So not whether or not someone is is in, in truth or in error, or if they're sort of rightly ordered to the correct political structure, but but just the fact that they exist as a human being, they deserve to have the the religious, the right of religious freedom. Um, someone like Card- Cardinal Ottaviani would say, "Oh, well, that's that's a radical departure from the consensus in the traditional view," and he's not wrong, objectively speaking. Like in terms of you could literally stack up quantities of passages from magisterial uh, teachings of different degrees and of, of authority that do seem to oppose the very thing that ends up Vatican II ends up uh, supporting. I say all this because I'm not saying there isn't a way to reconcile that. I'm not weighing in on those debates. Those are a bunch of other Catholic debates post-Vatican II that have occurred. What I'm saying is that Father Rooney now seems to be using against the Universalists <clears throat> the very same kinds of arguments that were used against someone like uh, the American Catholic theologian, John Courtney Murray, 
at Vatican II and his supporters at Vatican II. Um, um, in order to defend, though, the anti-integralist position, which is one that is not, historically speaking, the consensus, but is now in the church, it was what, what Catholics would call a development of doctrine, illicit development of doctrine. A, so, illicit, not illicit. But right, illicit. yeah, yeah, yeah. Illicit, occur, uh, uh, not only illicit or allowable, but even, even like that is the church teaching now. I mean, it's officially, right? So... So I, I say this because I don't find it very helpful and I find it honestly pretty distorting to an oversimplifying of, of really complex and fundamental matters about being a Catholic theologian or philosopher or thinker today in the 21st century. I think it's distorting to say, well, you know, one of the big problems with a view like uh, Christian universalism or hard universalism is that it's simply not the consensus of the tradition. Well, neither is anti-integralism, technically speaking, and yet the church recognized. And so here's the further point here under this qualification. It's not just that the church developed in doctrine. It's just that the, it's that the church ends up siding with what you might call transitional figures who were accused of being presumptuous, of overturning the tradition, of opposing the consensus of all the ages, et cetera, et cetera, on somebody's fundamental, someone like John Courtney Murray. It turns out he was right to do so. So it's not so you can't defend post-Vatican II anti-integralism without implicitly recognizing, at least in principle, because you in this case you at least recognize it in fact, that it's it it, it was right for him to oppose what seemed to be pretty clearly on the surface the opposition view to uh, you know in light of the consensus of tradition. So this rhetoric, the simplifying rhetoric of well, it's just outside of the bounds of orthodoxy. It's heterodox. It's heretical. Um, I don't find that particularly helpful. And I also don't really think it's an accurate representation of the way Catholic uh, dogma develops or doctrine develops and, and the relationship between that and, say, speculative theology, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I don't really think it does um, the church in the 21st century any kind of service to pretend otherwise. Um, and and the truth is the hard work is actually getting into the details of exactly what's being said, exactly what's being condemned, et cetera, et cetera. So if you want, David, we can we can discuss, for example, three, I think, moments where Father Rooney has pointed to that says, well, look, see, universalism is 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 definitively ruled out. If you want to do that, or we can go elsewhere. Yeah. Well, but before we get into that, just just to say that, you know, that what's on the line here is not just for some folks a doctrinal discussion or a reflection on how tradition, you know, changes over time. But, you know, what's on the line here for some people is whether or not they can believe in God. Yes. Um, and these are people that have been formed and grown up in the Christian tradition in one form or another, whether it's Catholicism or it's Anyway, it could be it could be any 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 almost anywhere across the Christian spectrum, but somewhere along the line they were taught by somebody in an authoritative position that this being a Christian meant that they had to believe that God in foreknowledge knew that there would be some that would never make it and went ahead with creation anyway. But in order for you to be a Christian, you have to believe that. You have to be okay with that. And then they say, Well, I'm I'm sorry, then I guess I'm out. I can't in good conscience, be a part of something like this. 
and but but they are never then told that within the history of the tradition that there were lots of people who held this view and who, like you said, didn't seem to be defective in spirit, who were held in good, you know, in good regard in their time. Uh, so that the issue to me is more than kind of a, a theological debate, but kind of this very personal spiritual thing that happens about in a person's soul about whether they can unite themselves to God. Yes. And actually there you're, you're getting to, to something that I do think is the heart of the matter in some of these discussions, especially with Rooney and, and David Hart. Um, I don't think Father Rooney has sufficiently realized, and I'm not going to say, you know, whether or not, sometimes I, I personally, I wouldn't cert, state certain things the way that David Hart does. It doesn't matter. I mean, you know, that's a different kind of, it's, it's a difference in execution or a difference of articulation, whatever. Um, but sometimes it could come across, and I understand why some people could read it this way. Although I ha- actually I wrote a whole a fairly long summary and uh, and kind of reflection on David Hart's "That All Shall Be Saved" when it came out, um, mm-hmm. and so you can kind of see the way that I read it initially, which which does try to push a little bit more in the direction that you are you just stated, which is a kind of the sort of personal at stake. And I think for David that's fundamental, and I do think that is animating uh, what he's saying, but. He he's also sort of a <laughs> he's also kind of a what, what do I call it? Um, he's got a weakness for the apodictic, you know. He's sort he really wants to close the argument, the logical argument, in such a way that it's irrefutable, as he said on several occasions, etc. And and so I look, you you, you got to get into the details, etc., to see whether or not you, he's succeeded at that and all that. And and those those discussions are often derailed. But nevertheless, you can at least see on the level of rhetoric why someone would 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 take up the posture that Father Rooney does, which is da- David Hart and therefore I suppose every other Universalist uh, that's ever lived and that is currently living thinks that it's just a matter of logical necessity. Something like two plus two, uh, what follows from that in- inherently or logically is four, that all shall be saved. And, and wow, for one thing, isn't that just super presumptuous for him to sort of, as it were, tie God's hand, I don't know, to his own absolute will or something. But, um, you know, it, it's uh, number one. But then number two, like what, what we need to do then, if you're on Rooney's side, is we need to sort of poke holes in the logical consistency of that argument. And if you do, then the best you can you come up with is a soft universalism, which isn't sure because as Rooney likes to say, which is a kind of analytic expression, uh, what is the truth maker here, right? And, and his whole argument, as you probably already, I think you went over a little bit with David in your interview, is essentially, well, it's either got to come on the side of God or the side of human beings. If, if it's necessary, so in other words, to hold something uh, uh, is necessarily true, like it couldn't be otherwise. For Rooney... It requires a quote-unquote truth maker. What is the condition that makes it so uh, necessarily so? This conclusion necessarily follows, right? For him, it's either it's got to be either the God side or human side. If you say it's on God's side, then somehow I think you're sort of I think in his view you're sort of negating uh, divine freedom, or or sort of that God could have a good reason to, for example, allow someone to persist forever in their rejection of God, which is actually 
the, uh, the same thing as their own uh, eternal torment. And I know he rejects the moniker eternal conscious torment, but to me, it looks it looks like that scenario. You've got an eternal being who is conscious and who is tormented. And mm-hmm. so you can sort of speak around that and say, well, it's not like they're being stabbed with pitchforks. Well, well fine, but psychological anguish because you can't reach and you, and you, re- you refuse to accept the very thing that will uh, bring you the most profound satisfaction resulting necessarily in anguish. Sorry, that looks to me still like eternal conscious torment because uh, all three of those descriptors apply. But nevertheless, he's, he's saying like, well, so what is it that necessarily makes it the case that that won't happen? And if it's on the side of God, it's like you're saying God has no greater reasons or something to permit that because on Rooney's account as well, and we're not even getting into the like whether or not creation is necessary. Let's just take his account and say God could have not created anything. I actually think that makes the problem worse because it means that God provides the only sufficient sufficient condition that God himself can, namely existence. And it's not as if God doesn't know the perpetual outcome of the one to whom he gives existence. And on Rudy's account, God could have withheld that gift of existence just as well as he could have given it, right? Yes, if I um, was uh, if I was David Bentley Hart, I might say something like, uh, the gift of an existence which ends in eternal torment seems more like a curse than a gift. Pre- precisely, right. I mean, look, look. I'll, I'll make it as concrete as, 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 it, as it could be desired. I have four daughters. I didn't even, I'm not even God's position, right? When, I, when we decided to have children, I didn't know who they were going to be. I didn't know their names, but we, you know, conceived, gave birth to three, you know, my wife gave birth to four daughters. And so I don't know what they're going to do tomorrow. True. I don't know what they're going to do in 20 years. I don't know what they're going to do in 70 years. Right. But surely God does. That's a difference, right? God does certainly mm-hmm. know. He yes, sees were, all. God is in a position of foreknowledge and sovereignty that you don't possess. Precisely. Now, if someone were to tell me and I knew it with the same sort of confidence that surely God's knowledge retains, <laughs> like he knows what he knows to be true is in, he knows infallibly. Right? I, would, I would think that's something we could all agree on. At least Rooney and I can. Mm-hmm. Um, if someone were to tell me and I had some way to know with that degree of confidence that my oldest daughter would reject God. She would die in sin. She would perpetually reject God. And there's an ambiguity in Rooney's account about whether or not the final moment of death is definitive or because on the other hand, he says that it's really a perpetual resistance. Yeah, it's, seems a, it's, to a, be, it's sort of continue, persisting in a state of mortal sin forever. The problem with that, though, is that um, you can't seem to me, uh, it, it really doesn't make sense to say that one can definitively, like in an act, resist God. And also, though, one must perpetually do so. If you continually perpetually do so, <laughs> and then apparently the earlier, uh, the earlier rejections weren't definitive. But if you definitively <laughs> do so, then pr- apparently you wouldn't perpetually need to continue to do so because you've definitively done it once. Right. So that's already, in my opinion, talk about logical inconsistencies. I think there's one right there. Uh, and by the way, that is a result of Rooney departing from what I would call the consensus view of hell. Um, you'll notice he doesn't talk very much about predestination. He doesn't talk a whole lot about original sin. He will go to Adam 
uh, as sort of the exemplar of human freedom. But of course, the doctrine of original sin in its Augustinian and Thomist form is precisely that we're not free the way Adam was. Although he I'm, does quote he does quote Thomas is saying that the reason that you know it's a, it, it's the sun shines upon all, and the reason that that some are not saved is just that they refuse to open their eyes to the sun. Right, but then the and then the discussion becomes well, what what does it take to open your eyes? Right, yeah. it does does God have a part in that? Right, etc. <laughs> and I I think, and I've actually read a, an essay that I can't say who it's by, but it's going to be coming as we publish somewhat soon making the argument that uh, Rooney's free will defense, not just his, but just the free will defense, say like Lewis or anybody, um, really is a departure from uh, Augustine and Thomas on exactly that point. Um, and, and they were right to see that the real issue goes back to predestination. Precisely. Well, and, that, be- and that's the same thing that happens in the Protestant Reformation, is they're agreeing on predestination. I think the Arminian claim tries to say, wait a second, we can be reformed too. But right. they they have a real burden to try to bear in that. Yeah, and 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 it's exact. I mean, look, it's to me, it's it is a little bit clear why why everyone wants to push it back that to that step. It's exactly be, and in fact, I would say, and so this is this is a little bit of a side. I know I'm a little bit over the all over the place right now, but <laughs> um, uh, Rooney Rooney loves again because he needs to find the reduction at absurdum. That this is a part of the game. You you need to do that in order to show that your opponent's uh, position is inherently inconsistent, and therefore not worth, uh, and in fact perilous, and maybe other in, uh, you know insinuations underneath there. Um, he keeps saying like you know it's all tied together. You know David Hart's view that we're essentially God. David Hart's view that uh, God could not have uh, not created right, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, which 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 is a view that is actually held by various figures, especially in the East that I know of. Um, but he keeps saying that this is all sort of part and parcel is of a piece with this grand, you know, sort of uh, big league heresy type stuff. Well, yeah, it, it, is, it reminds me kind of the Pelagian can't, um, not the Pelagian, the originist controversy. There was origin, then there was originism. And it's like right. there's Christian universalism. And then there's heartism, which is a kind of, iteration of Christian universalism overlaid with some of David Bentley Hart's rhetoric and other contentions and claims as if that's the only thing we're ever talking about. Yes. And I, and I, and that really is because the funny thing to me about that is that I actually think it's a lot harder to explain. Um, And I think predestination, the question of predestination is much more to the foreground and central. If you do hold to a view of creation that isn't necessary. Because what you have is God willing creation that he could have not willed if he didn't want to. And so that actually is the staging of the problem. That is the very source of the tension. And that's why somebody like Augustine knows that in the Pelagian controversy. It's why he goes there. He's already doing that, by the way, in the 390s in Ad Simplicianum. You can read that, read his interpretation of Romans 9 through 11. Uh, that is, you know, he's already well there. But certainly as it develops more uh, over the course of the controversy, he knows that's where he has to go. Because for him, right, it's, look, it, it, I mean, you know, his view of grace is one thing, and, and it does differ in some ways from Thomas's, I, as far as I understand it. However, both of them, I think, are at one. I do think that, and I think, uh, I think some other people have shown this pretty sufficiently, but I won't get into the details here. But I think the, the fundamental impulse is, ob- is obvious, though. It's a, it's a kind of basic point, which is 
God creates somebody if if anybody is damned eternally in the way even if it even if you do sort of change the details and say well God is inflicting punishment but he's sort of allowing them to inflict eternal punishment on themselves in such a way which by the way is the greatest spiritual anguish imaginable then um, it certainly is the case that God and nobody else gave them the existence which is this absolutely necessary and you know condition for them to go on and actually experience that fate they didn't choose to give themselves existence and god god did and god did in all knowledge so that is setting up the exact and even intratomist debates you know there's different there's different yeah. readings and they get into that but but the point is that all of them are sensing this issue right and so I actually think it's interesting that, that Father Rooney seems to me, at least so far, uh, to kind of have shied away from all these on all that that point. He'll sort of mention predestination here and there, but basically doesn't see it as a as a as a super central issue. Yeah, it's a it's almost like um th- that. Well, his argument seems very similar to some of the arguments, the main arguments I run into in like American evangelicalism which is kind of an enshrinement of free will. And so that God is the ultimate enshrinement of free will and human beings in God's image are enshrined in free will. So it's this kind of free will thing uh, writ, writ large. Okay, everybody has liberty here. Everybody has freedom here. And uh, we'll just see then uh, what happens. Right, which again, I, I think on a I think on an Augustinian view, at least, there's a pretty decent case to be made that isn't really at least his position. And perhaps Father Rooney disagrees with Augustine on this. That's fine. Um, but it's it's really more the case that Adam, if you posit Adam as an individual, say at the beginning, the ancestor who gives rise to all of the human race, whatever you mean by that, let's just mm-hmm. posit that for now. Well, yes, he was given everything he needed, sufficient grace and et cetera, et cetera, in order to choose and love God, and he rejected it. But surely the consequences of sin, death, finitude, ignorance, selfishness, the libido dominandi, original sin, Mm -hmm. now becomes the conditions within which all of the progeny of Adam are born. And so it does seem a little bit bizarre to say that they have the same sort of freedom. Right. As well, Adam Adam, couldn't, yeah. Well, Adam couldn't, I think, uh, Maxim, I may be, I may be getting this from your book on Maximus confessor, <laughs> but I think, I think if I remember that Maximus makes the point that, well, Adam couldn't have been fully mature at the point that he falls into sin, because if he was fully mature, then his gnomic will, you know, would, would have been overcome. And he would see things clearly. And of course, that would have been the, the, the serpent. All those temptations would have had no attraction to him. It's precisely his immaturity, mm-hmm. you know, that allows him to fall into that state. Yeah. And as you know from, from the book, I mean, Maximus's view in some ways is in some respects, it's even more extreme than Augustine's. Uh, because he and St. Gregory of Nyssa and some others... Uh, hold the view essentially that, uh, like, well, as he says three times, that Adam fell at the very instant he came into being. And the view that you're referencing there is one from Irenaeus, the okay. idea that, that Adam and Eve, but also Maximus, you know, nods to that as well. He seems to be aware of it. Um, and it's fundamental to his count as well, account as well. But, but, the, but right. So the, the, the point is, um, 
even there, like, let's let's consider the the two individuals in in the Garden of uh, of, of, um, of uh, Eden, and let's say they are somehow. And I think on Maximus's account, this isn't even possible. And I gave all these reasons why in the book. But let's just say they're somehow in a state of like neutral innocence. Still, they are there. It's it's the sort of innocence of childhood. It's the innocence of immaturity. Which does then already constrain freedom because it has it has features like ignorance, right? It has it has features like not being able to think through the implications of action or the consequences of action. Anybody that's been a parent knows what it means. Uh, I, I think this uh, Rowan Williams. I think I got this from him from a book he wrote that is really good called Lost Icons. Uh, he says uh, childhood is the time in which children get to experiment with uh, identities without having to suffer the consequences, you know, and, and, and part of your job as a parent is to guide, right. To guide them along, but, but you sort of shield them from the full consequences. Like if my child says I'm a superhero, I want to run out in traffic in order to save, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to say, well, no, there's a boundary there. Like you don't Mm -hmm. fully understand the danger you're, you're, you're accepting here. Right. Or if my child wants to, you know, eat candy every single day for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, um, I, I'm going to keep them from doing that. They don't fully understand, um, et cetera, right? So it's a whole sort of give and take there. And that's the process of bringing someone to maturity. It doesn't negate their freedom, but it does bind their freedom in certain crucial ways. And so even if Adam and Eve began in this sort of state of pristine but but sort of immature innocence that mm-hmm. doesn't mean they're just simply absolutely free all things everything else sort of uh sort of being thrown to the wayside all the actual conditions or constraints but then the further point the more and certainly in maximus's view and in gregor Nyssa's view it's not just that they wouldn't be uh it's not just that that's the kind of constraints that we are born into but anyone posterior to the fall, which for Maximus, actually from our perspective, according to him, the whole world's beginning looks like it's already posterior to the fall, adds further constraints. You're not just sort of, you're not a sort of blank slate mm-hmm. where you just come into the world and your eyes are open and anything, you know, and you have no particular inclinations. No, you're already in a world marred and marked by violence, by ignorance, by hatred by revenge, by ailments, by death, by tragedies, by the prospect of nihilistic meaninglessness, by the mm-hmm. loss of, of, of you know, the, the existential crises, by betrayal, by adultery, by all of the, right, all of the vices of the flesh listed in Galatians 5 and Colossians 3. That's already what you're born into. So I, I, I guess, I guess I'm, all this is just, to go back to your point, which you which sort of launched this, is that two things. Number one, it isn't sufficient to think about freedom and grace as two opposing and abstract forces. That isn't actually the way grace or freedom ever really exist. That's for several reasons. We just gave some in, in the darker side, right? Sort of in this fallen world, there's all those mm-hmm. reasons. But also because... There is no such thing as grace that isn't the grace of someone, namely God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, for someone, namely the world and all the creatures and the children of God. So it's already interpersonal. 
It's already getting at the particularities of each person, of what they need at each point in the process, of what sort of conditions they're born into as their beginning, and what they need in order to be brought through to their end. And that is, there is an element for each person where their path will be as unique as they are, because God, after all, isn't just in the business here in creation of creating a grand order, like some sort of, you know, beautiful masterpiece on this tableau, which where darkness and light can kind of contrast and make it more beautiful. He is trying to raise children of God, according to Gospel of John chapter one. God himself became flesh in order to give us the power to become children of God. Okay, so God's mission in creation is to raise children, raise up his children. And anyone who has raised children knows it is not about this general abstract opposing force against this general abstract opposing force. You have to know your child's name. You have to know who they are. You have to know what they've gone through. You have to know how they're going to react. You have to learn, you know, you have to work with each one of them. There's no cookie cutter pattern to this stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think if you if you realize that that is the heart of God in creation, then sometimes you can sort of cut through some of the distractions and the oversimplifications and distortions that I think have plagued this conversation so far. And that's what that goes right back to your comment, right? That it's much more. So that's one side of it. I've been speaking more towards God as 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 parent, right, as father. Mm-hmm. But the other side of it is. Um, is this issue about how how this isn't just some sort of game or abstract to what side do you take for a lot of people it's about whether or not they can trust in god i don't want to i'm not i'm not interested in sitting in judgment over someone because they have a, a hard time <laughs> um thinking that God is infinitely good, infinitely uh, powerful, infinitely wise, and infinitely free, and especially, and even if, and and perhaps more so, if God didn't need to do anything, he could have simply never created anyone, or maybe could have created a better world, as Thomas Aquinas also says. Um, Then um, I'm not really interested in um, sort of belittling or dismissing the pretty obvious fact that for at least some people that might pose a real problem to belief itself. So it's not just an exegetical game about what do you do with Matthew 25 and Revelation 20 mm-hmm. versus 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 11. It's also not just a philosophical game of how do you conceive of freedom in the abstract versus grace in the abstract versus blah, 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 right? This is about whether or not I can trust God. And um, and for some people, they don't they don't actually sense it that way. And here's the mm-hmm. difference again. Back to that initial right remark about the qualify uh, the qualification about how we're approaching this. I don't really care if other people don't have that problem. I'm not saying they should or I want to force it on them. If someone is fine and they still believe in God's goodness and they just don't really care to think through these things, that's fine. I'm not out here saying everyone has to give you know answer for this. Um, but I also don't, therefore, think that if you disagree with me, you're, you're a heretic or something. So, um, but we need to be able to make space for the profound. I mean, I was just reading today Maurice Blondel in his own uh, journals, which he was writing around 1893 through 1896, pro- wrestles profoundly with what he calls the scandal of the doctrine of hell. 
you can read Charles Taylor's A Secular Age. He talks about how the 19th, 20th century, and maybe even more, he calls, he has spent 15 pages on that volume, in that massive volume about what he calls the decline of hell. And a lot of it is this sort of um, profound existential turmoil over the prospect that God could create creatures in the sort of way that we begin and under all the constraints we listed earlier in this fallen, damaged world, this world which the New Testament itself says is passing away. And and yet someone could bear the ultimate consequences in perpetuity of failing to, as it were, find the exact you know uh, right path uh, during mm-hmm. the perhaps seventy year you know time frame. So. I think if, and here's the thing, I want to say this, I'm not even sure Father Rooney, I'm not saying he doesn't even sense that. In fact, what I think is that his, his own sort of updated view, which is a departure of the classical uh, consensus of the tradition, where he says, for example, like, well, um, you know, I think that the image I'm going to use for hell is like these sort of insane people in, in like a ward or whatever I can't remember it was, or like in a, a nursing home or something. And they just don't know that you're not, you know, the nurses aren't out to get them or whatever. Like they don't know what's good for them. And he sort of says, you know, well, you know, so the blessed in heaven, when they view those in hell, they're going to kind of regard them that way. Like Father Rooney did when he worked uh, apparently at a, right, at, at a um, nursing home. Um, uh, it, well, okay. <laughs> I mean, I would. I wonder what would have happened if Father Rooney did that while he was sitting next to like a child of one of those people. Would their regard be simply one of, well, you're in the image of God, so you're still good, and it's just very sad that you don't know what's good for you, or would they be fundamentally broken? Because as my my father, who's a hospice chaplain, often tells me, people, family members are broken hearted and they're in anguish because they'll say things like, "That person is not really my mom anymore." That person's not really the the uncle I knew. So I don't think there's a dispassionate way to look at these people. And I think that's a quaint image that doesn't really get at the reality. Once again, interestingly, the interpersonal reality, the actual intersubjective um, relation that somebody has to this isn't just a person who is in the image of God. It's someone's mom. Mm -hmm. It's someone's brother. Right. This isn't just, oh, well, you know, it's sad you don't know what's good for you. Uh, it's, it's, I am in anguish because you don't know. Right. And, and because in some way you're not knowing is actually a mark that you aren't who you truly are. How could that not be a source of total and complete despair, especially whenever it's perpetual? Right. Yeah, It seems, it seems to me that, that in, if you, if you are trying to somehow make sense out of the infernalist position and trying to defend that God has may have reasons to be able to do this to make a creation which he knows in foreknowledge will condemn some, many, most, nearly all to some kind of eternal perdition. That then there's a kind of callousness that sort of backflows into the moral and theological argumentation, which you, you know, which you pointed out that that a lot of the analogies that get made uh, maybe have unconsciously uh, sort of carried that kind of callousness in it. You know, right. there's just, well, you know, that's just, you know, the arguments end up kind of sounding like, well, there's just maybe ways that this just doesn't work out. And I'm sure that we'll all see that and that'll be okay. And, you know, like, nothing to see here. We should just move on. 
We should just move on. Right. And, you know, let, let's take another example. He, he uh, used both in his first and second articles in Church Life Journal, which is, you know, the one who thrust themselves, uh, the beloved who thrust themselves over the cliff and you grab them and you're holding on to them. And basically they're just telling you to let them go, let them go, let them go. And wouldn't you, you know, wouldn't you hang on to them even if it's a million years uh, because love, out of love, you couldn't let them go? Well, I mean, um, <laughs> that really isn't the, the, uh, the dilemma God faces, is it? Because his choice is whether or not to create somebody who would eventually, he knows in unf- infallible knowledge, thrust himself off a cliff and et cetera, et cetera. So you, you, you can just jump right in the middle of the, of the, you know, of creation as it's already given and then start talking about freedom and grace and what would love demand, et cetera. But of course, you just skipped over the fundamental part, which is that God created a world he knew would end that way. Yeah. Once you really start thinking about foreknowledge and sovereignty for up until I was 50, I think I held the, the a view kind of like the C.S. Lewis view. Right. But it was, you know, David Bentley Hart and others that forced me to take a look at my causality and say, you know, you're not really connecting God's sovereignty and God's foreknowledge in the outcome of creation and the moral character of God. You you haven't really gotten all that lined up in your theology. And I had to sit back and say, well, you know, you're right. I need to rethink this. Right. Because at the very least, there is a problem it isn't just an abstract logical one. It is a profoundly existential one. And so it carries quite a lot of weight the more you think about it. And I think Father Rooney's own updated version, which is also a departure of the consensus tradition, is is his way of trying. He does register that. And he's also reflecting the same sort of development of doctrine and of reflection on hell that's happened within the Catholic, uh, Catholic uh, theology of the 20th century. So if you read... Uh, Pope St. John Paul II's book on eschatology, he very clearly continues to come back to this idea that how can we reconcile God's goodness with the, uh, the prospect of eternal perdition? Now, he does. He, he's more like what Rooney is saying. He doesn't want to offer any kind of, you know, final resolution or anything like that. But he certainly senses the right. So the so Catholic theology has sensed that and has moved away. I'll give you just an example. Oh, well, I've actually given one already. I just didn't complete it. One was. Uh, Rooney says, you know, that picture of the sort of, uh, you know, crazy people or insane or demented people or something or dement people of dementia or something like that in the in the uh, nursing home. Um, he's saying then that the blessed in heaven will will look upon those in, in hell in a similar way with a sort of almost like compassion, but a still recognition of their beauty and goodness. Well, that's fine, but that's certainly not what a lot of people in the tradition thought. I mean, I could cite, for example, Gregory the Great, who said that compassion for misery will no longer hold in the eternal bliss. And the only bliss you derive out of the sight of the damned is one in which you are praising God's justice for their for their uh, punishment. Well, that, certainly Lom- seemed, that seems more the traditional viewpoint. Well, that's my point. And Peter Lombard, for example, in the in the fourth book of his sentences, says the same thing and actually goes a little farther. St. Bonaventure passes over it a little bit. In fact, Balthazar himself, uh, in a short little chapter in a short discourse on on hell, has has a chapter called Joy Over, the, Over Damnation, uh, where he's cataloging all of this. It's certainly... That's Thomas Aquinas. He sort of strikes a little bit. He says, well, you're not going to derive joy from the sheer fact of their 
of their having been, uh, you know, condemned uh, forever. But you will you will sort of secondarily or, uh, you know, derivatively derive joy over the fact that God's justice triumphed, et cetera, et cetera. So actually, none of those are the picture that Father Rooney gives. His 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 view of the of the sort of joy and the bliss of uh, uh, of of those uh, you know who are saved in heaven, looking upon those that are damned, is none of those pictures, because he doesn't think you're deriving any kind of joy. And in fact, I think in one interview, I might be wrong about this. He even says it's not really even a matter of justice; it's a matter of just that you know God has a standing invitation to conversion. They can constant. They could always repent, but they never do, and that's how right, etc. Okay, that's fine. Uh, you know that that is a view, but my point once again is that that's certainly not the consensus view of that of the of the of the uh, the joy of the blessed over those in, that are damned. That's not really what most of these people thought. Um, so you've developed and you've you've updated it, and you probably did so under the sense that that's kind of horrific, right? Uh, the, the earlier view. Okay, well, um, so why can't I do that? And my and and, the, and why can't universalists do the same thing? Uh, or, or, or for another example, he says, you know, when he's when Father Rooney is discussing the what, he, what theologians, Catholic theologians call like the pain of loss versus the pain of sense and hell, you know, Rooney's whole thing is that God inflicts nothing, right? Right. He actually takes Isaac of Syria's line about uh, the fires are really just the love of God experienced by those that are sort of demented and, and are not right. It's pa- it's sort of a passive thing that God's not doing anything. You're just you're bringing it all on yourself. <laughs> You're bringing it all on yourself. It's not really about God getting sort of justice winning out over none of that. Well, that's fine, except at the Council of Trent, the catechism issued by that council really doesn't paint that picture at all. I've got a few examples here. Uh, The Council of Trent in Article 7 of their discussion of the creed uses for the part about the the torments or the the punishments of the wicked, Matthew 25, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And it has like, so the whole frame is very much that God is the active agent. Depart from me. He sends them away. Then there's this line here about divine justice. Since they who have been sent away can expect no consolation as an alleviation of their misery, the divine justice deservedly pursues them with every kind of malediction and curse once they've been banished. Okay, that sounds pretty different from Father Rooney's picture. Mm-hmm. He also says, for example, that the uh, that the pain of uh, he talks he likes to talk about the fire and whether or not it's material and all this and it's the pain of sense. And he opts for again Isaac of Syria as it's more like a psychological spiritual torment. Okay, well, mm-hmm. not according to Trent. Trent says specifically, quote, it is felt through the organs of sense like your body. When, moreover, we reflect that this torment is to be eternal, we can see at once that the punishment of the damned includes every kind of suffering, which, in other words, including bodily suffering. Now, Father Rooney has updated that. Okay, he's moved on and he said, well, you don't have to think that. All right, fine. I actually agree with him on on that. You don't have to think that. But, But my point is, once again, he is sensing... I think rightly this is a this is a, a source of existential dread and crisis for a lot of people when it comes to the faith. He's trying to update then, and he is in the process, in some pretty stark ways, departing from what I would call more the consensus of the tradition. So why is it that we're, we keep hearing the rhetoric go the other way, the polemics go the other way, and say Christian universalists are really apparently the only ones departing from the consensus of the of the tradition? 
I think probably what Father Rooney means is that the current magisterial teaching in its current form is what he's defending, but he isn't really allowing and being clear and really forthright about the fact that that itself is pretty is a pretty drastic development and in some respects a certain obvious departure from what really was the consensus earlier on. I mean, Dante didn't come out of nowhere, right? Uh, this mm-hmm. is the highest and primal uh, for- work of love over the right over the gate there of hell. That's not just Dante's imagination. Uh, Maurice Blondel wasn't, you know, didn't just make up this anguish, right? This stuff is rooted pretty deeply in the Christian past. So anyway, yeah, I think that, I think so, so far what we've said is that there's quite a lot of uh, innovating and developing going on on all sides. Mm -hmm. That itself is a mark, I think, of the growing awareness of the gravity of the problem here at the heart in some ways at the heart of the Christian faith, so that it's not just some sort of speculative or polemical game. And it's profoundly personal in both directions. So when Rooney says, what's the truth maker that makes it necessary that all shall be saved, he only ever considers abstract possibilities like, well, is it on the divine nature, the side of divine nature, or is it on the side of of human nature? Whereas I think the true problem is not whether or not human nature is free and what that entails, but about whether or not I can fully and with total confidence believe in a God who may well have created my four children, knowing full well that they will end in perpetual misery and gave them existence anyway. Yeah, that 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 is, to me, the question is ultimately sort of, I, I'm not really uh, competent to define what secure attachment means, but just from my generalized understanding, I'm not going to be able to securely attach to a parental figure that I cannot trust has absolutely my best will in mind and is also strong enough and able enough to protect me and deliver me. If, if, if I can't have that, then I'm going to live in some kind of fundamental angst. Yes. And (laughs) And that's that's really I don't know to me so much of this it never gets down to that basic fact if I knew that my daughter even say just one out of the four like three out of four ain't bad <laughs> but if, <laughs> but if I just knew that even one of them if I knew beforehand somehow someone could tell me that even one of them would end up that way I would have rather they not been born mm-hmm. and if you take it back to the idea that that you are the not just their father, but somehow the God of the universe in which they live, how would you ever conceive a creation in which you knew in advance that that they would come to a bad end? It wouldn't just be somebody else telling you that they were coming to a bad end. It would have been your deliberative process, and it would have, and then you would you would have to make peace with that in your own mind, explain it to the to the three that that made it, why the other one didn't. In yeah no good explanations could ultimately be given. And then they're supposed to look at their one sister who's languishing in her own deluded, uh, self-perpetuating misery, and and all they're supposed to think is, huh, that's sad. It's sort of like a uh, somebody who goes crazy at the end of their life and doesn't have their wits. That's it? No, 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 no. What they're going to be thinking is exactly what... Um, there was. I was reading this uh, Catholic theologian who had this uh, old, uh, this uh, parishioner, this old lady, 
And he said once, once when they were having a discussion around these matters, she said, he actually said, he's like, she's, everyone thought she was a saint. I mean, the way she lived and stuff. And so he's like, you know, so it was kind of surprising to hear her say this. She said, she says something that I think we've heard before. She says to this priest, um, there, there is no heaven for me that doesn't have those I love in it. And he said that he, he recalled this anecdote because it like really jarred him and it made him really interested in stuff. And he himself is a universalist and he's a Jesuit priest. He's still alive. He's really old. But um, that's the kind of sentiment we're talking about here, right? It, it isn't just a detached thing. This isn't just an instance of the image of God because it's a human being. And so somehow that means they are still good and you have to sort of assent to that and see that. No, they're not going to look at their sister. And they're not going to fixate on the abstract fact that their sister was made in the image of God. They're going to look at their sister and they're going to say, I will never enjoy the same kind of mutual love and bliss and delight in the smile in her face again. And that brings me great grief. That's what they're going to say. Anyone who thinks that the orders there are inverted, I dare say, just simply aren't thinking about human love. Yeah, that, that, that I think that is something that gets um, you can miss that in the sort of the, the polemics and the rhetoric of David Bentley Hart and his logic, his rigorous logic. You can miss that there's a beating heart, a, a moral imperative that's underneath all of it. Yes, and there and I do believe there is in in David as well. And here here's the problem, though. This is just sort of a general if I can make this it's going to it might seem out of, out of nowhere, but. I've really been thinking about this a lot lately for, for a lot of reasons. But, you know, as soon as sort of at the, the font of Western, if you want to put it that way, or metaphysics, Plato identifies the one source of all things with the good, and in some versions, the beautiful. You really do just have an inherent tension between what is metaphysically true is also morally true. Right? The good is both. The good is the one. The one is the good. They're interchangeable. You can do all the transcendentals, et cetera, right? And this is why, this is another thing I I do want to bring up. This is why one reason why I don't really understand the idea that you can sort of mount a logical case for or against and somehow sidestep all the moral intuitions and judgments and problems that, that arise in the course of thinking about these things. Once again, we're, we're not thinking simply about a math problem. We're not talking about mm-hmm. calculus here, uh, which wouldn't even make sense because that's probabilities. But yeah, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> we're we're talking about um, we're talking about the good the, the good himself who is three persons, right? In, you know, interpenetrating an infinite love eternally, and then that love, that very same love, which is always impersoned, right? Uh, personal in God for the world. There's no other abstract love. Just like there's no other abstract grace, like as if it's some sort of power. Grace is just God's loving gaze affecting you, warming you, right? And allowing and, and, and sort of allowing you to be what you couldn't from your own devices be, of course. Um, so, so uh, but it, my, my point there is that I actually think it's a part of our reasoning about things like what's metaphysically and then ultimately eschatologically possible that you, you shouldn't just um, expect, but you should sort of, or you shouldn't just sort of allow, but you should even expect the kind of moral intuitions to come in and play fundamental roles at crucial points. I actually think Father Rooney does this as well. 
I was listening to an interview he did. And at one point he says, you know, I'm not considering um, the idea. I think it's, he says, I'm not considering the uh, Calvinist idea here when I'm discussing these matters that God eternally elects some to be damned or, or that he could have, like, it's possible that God could have created a world in which all would be damned. And he says, and I think this is a direct quote, if I'm remembering accurately, he says, I just think that's silly. That's a hateful view of God. Okay, so all of a sudden now we can invoke our own sensibility about what we should expect of God and his goodness <laughs> and his love and his beauty, right? All of a sudden now we can say there's a hate, such a thing as a hateful view of God, which we should, just by thinking about it, reject. And he thinks right, yeah. that's Calvinism, right? I, was, so, I, was, uh, I have some friends that grew up in uh, Calvinist churches, and they said that one of the things that was stressed in Calvinism to them is the utter incomprehensibility of God. Of course. So there are the eternal decrees of God, and don't worry about trying to figure them out or judge God about them, because God is God is incomprehensible to you. Yeah. And so you're going along with this, and you don't even need to question it because you don't have the capacity. Right. And Father Rooney, I think, basically makes a similar argument when he says, well, I know, you know, I know it's pretty hard to understand why God would create someone who would perpetually damn themselves forever and therefore be miserable um, forever and in profound ways. But he says, but God will still have reasons which are good, not only for for creation generally, but even for that person. Mm -hmm. But we, you know, uh, well, what are they? What are the reasons? And, and by the way, we, we do know that one of the reasons can't be that they will eventually turn. That's the point, that we're discussing the exact scandal that they never will, right? So you can't, so, so what are these reasons that are sort of mysterious that God has for creating someone who's going to end that way um, that can't include their own conversion and therefore eventually their own happiness and their own you know, restoration to all those who love them and who I think would be at anguish to see them in that condition forever. And so what's interesting is we sort of all of a sudden have from Father Rooney, we have a sort of Calvinist uh, mentality at the end, even though he's anti-Calvinist. And even though he judges the Calvinist picture of God to be hate, a, a quote, hateful one. Well, why is it so hard to see that a universalist might, might hear someone like Rooney saying, well, there are really good reasons for God to permit even if it doesn't ever come to pass, but he does permit some, he might, he might indeed pers per permit some to uh, persist eternally. Uh, those reasons won't include them actually turning and being restored uh, to what God made them to be or who God made them to be. Um, but you should just accept anyway that God is still good nonetheless. I mean, that sounds like a Cal, I mean, what exactly what, do Calvinists give reasons why God eternally elects some and or other? No. There's no specific reason why you may or may not be among the elect. So that's the same kind of argument. It's basically, eventually, it's just a, it's just an appeal to God's absolute freedom as brawl power to make the decision as he sees fit. So all of a sudden, the predestination thing does sneak in at the end is really the decisive factor once again. And so th this is where I... I <laughs> Uh, so two things. So apparently we can actually appeal to sentiments and we can make moral judgments about pictures of God presented to us because Father Rooney does it. Uh, but at the same time, we need to know when to throw up our hands and say, well, look, you know, uh, he might have some reasons after all. It's the same thing the Calvinists say about what you just called hateful. So which is it? 
Are we allowed to make judgments based on what we know of God through his self-revelation and Jesus Christ, who, while we were still sinners, died for us, who wills always to be saved or everyone to be saved, etc.? Uh, or not? And where do you draw that line and why? And, and again, I think probably, I do think Father Rooney is operating in good faith. I think he thinks he's defending the current official teaching of the church, and he has to do it, and he's doing the best he can. And uh, and, and that's fine. Um, his, his understanding of it, I would I'd question, right? And um, But nevertheless, I, <laughs> we at least need to be honest and say that sort mm-hmm. of move, that, that shifts the goalposts pretty often and pretty conveniently. Well, I've noticed that once somebody gets, um, you know, once you get a certain pair of glasses on and you're defending the world and you're seeing the world in a certain way, you tend to look at things in that way. So if if you're taking a, a position like Father Rooney is, well, you start to look at the Bible a certain way, and you also start to look at figures in the history of the tradition a certain way. So whereas Father Rooney might look at somebody like Maximus and see some things or quotes attributed to him or translated into English in a certain way and say, aha, look, I see that Maximus is not, um, is not on board with the universal restoration. You know, he, he would already be in a way predisposed to kind of see that through the lens at which he's looking at, at Maximus. And so, and also to then find other scholars that have that same lens and then quote them so it creates a kind of an echo chamber in which it turns out that suddenly, well, Maximus, no, Maximus did not envision the, the restoration of all creation. Yeah. And look, I mean, here's the thing. A, a careful, patient, um, I think responsible handling of Maximus on the question would at least flag that this has been, um, I think, what, since the early 20th century, a disputed question in Maximus studies. Um, you would know that one of the earliest French um, scholars who wrote a, a, a pretty decent article on this called the sources of uh, Maximus' spirituality argued that he was, in fact, Maximus was a universalist, but he didn't feel like he could fully come out and, and say that. You would know that um, that was challenged by a few scholars, including Polycarp Sherwood. And then, that, and then you would know that later that was challenged. And the earlier French uh, scholars view was, was uh, was defended by Balthazar on two occasions, et cetera, et cetera, right? This is the way things go. Um, and I happen to be someone who is in a position to at least uh, know the evidence. And um, I think uh, there are, there are um, certainly passages that you could just quote, you could proof text that, um, that make it look very much like Maximus is sort of a, not a universalist. Um, and that he does envision, I mean, the, the, but the, the point is, this is the whole sort of grounds of the debate, because then there's like 10 other passages that really make it look like he is. And there is, as well, as I've said in other contexts, there are other passages that seem to have basically been left out of the debate that I think would really ought to be brought in, which are passages like, um, um, like, it's funny because I can think of at least one passage that's actually a far stronger argument for Maximus not being a universalist than any of the ones that Father Rooney has cited. And that is one about sort of the... Um, uh, you know, the angels, the fallen angels, and how they're bound forever and perverted human beings and their wills, and there will never be a chance that they could turn, like, etc. He says these, like, really strong statements. But then also, equally, there's another the, the, there's another side where an equally strong statement, when he's talking about the harrowing of hell in one passage, he says that Christ comes in and breaks the eternal bonds. And he has just defined the eternal bonds as our, quote, 
irrational attachment to sensible things, which for him, if you know about his theory of sin and the fall, etc., really is the whole condition and even the consequence of sin itself. So what he just said there in that other passage is that there can be such a thing as eternal sins, eternal conditions which have, which, which have bound us like the fallen angels mentioned by Jude in sin, and yet Christ, the power, he's talking about Christ's power through the, uh, through the crucifixion, through the passion, that power can nevertheless break what seems eternal, what is eternal, what's called eternal. So that's like a datum from Maximus's passages that I've never seen anyone bring into the discussion. But that's pretty important because it means that Maximus can say two things at once. He can say in one respect, there is considered apart from the passion, the power of the passion of Christ, there is no hope for some. They so bind themselves to material delights. They so reject God, um, even though Maximus is extremely clear, nobody ever rejects God in full knowledge. That That's actually fundamental to his thought. Um, anyone could read the introduction to uh, questions of Thalassius to see that. But, um, but nevertheless, let's just say, so uh, he can say on the one hand, that there are some that so bind themselves to sin that they are eternally bound. That sounds like eternal conscious torment. But you can also say in other passages, especially discussing the power of the passion of Christ, that those same eternal bonds can be and have been broken in Christ. Mm-hmm. So that seems relevant, right? But anyway, but but the bigger point here is that that requires a sort of patient, careful, attentive read of a highly complex and subtle thinker. And so rather than recruit, I mean, anyone, you, you know, you read my book. I don't even really address the question of apocatastasis and Maximus, except in like one footnote. I think I mentioned the controversy and I threw out some of the stuff I just said there is like something I think ought to be explored further. Now, I don't I'm not saying that my book doesn't have, you know, uh, like it could you could easily draw out the universalist consequences and, and et cetera. But it's actually not inherent, uh, an inherent feature of the argument. Um, so. I haven't, in other words, I haven't even recruited Maximus for the universalist crusade (laughs) Um, in some sort of unproblematic and clear way. And so I do find it a little baffling that somebody who seems seems to have just recently started reading Maximus could so quickly do so for the other side. And I do think that's that's really unnecessary and and a little bit irresponsible. So, um, yeah, anyway, so there's... There's much more that could be said about Maximus's, uh, and we will do that. I do want to. I want to do an episode where we just get into your, your book. Now, uh, a while back, you said you had a few observations uh, that you had prepared about uh, Father Rooney, and uh, I immediately sidetracked you from that. Oh, so we may have covered some of those, but if there's any that we haven't covered, why don't you let us know what those are? Well, so I think one one thing I do. I don't remember the. I, I said plural, like a few, maybe we have covered, I think some of it, but one of the ones that I don't think we've covered that should be is um, very often, I, I do think probably the, the engine of Father Rooney's arguments are essentially to oppose freedom to necessity and to say always, you need to pick one or the other, whether you're thinking of God creating, God saving, uh, you know, uh, human beings reacting, nature and grace, whatever you're thinking of, you you have to choose um, one or the other. 
And, and, and it seems to me that's really at the heart of what he's saying. He even says uh, that the reason why he even kind of like got into these discussions is because he has a, a longstanding interest in free will. So it makes sense. I mean, he's, you know, he's, he's trying to understand uh, how free will interacts with God's grace. It's an old problem, as he says. And so that's very much his entree into the universalist discussion. So it makes sense that he adopts something like, um, I don't even want to say, by the way, I do want to say this. I don't really think Rooney's view is simply Balthazar's view. Uh, because if you read Balthazar, he's far more confident. He does not come out and say it's absolutely the case that everyone will be saved. But he does quote, for example, like E.S. Stein, St. E.S. Stein saying it's infinitely improbable in reality that they won't be, even though in principle it does still remain possible for someone to be eternally damned. Uh, which, which, and Balthazar is very clear when he discussed the shift from the Old to New Testament, that one of the major shifts is that the judge has is, is Christ, right? So it's no longer just God sort of uh, interacting with his people, even in covenantal relationship with them, uh, who is going to judge them and the world, but it is actually he who is crucified for the world, who did not come into the world to condemn it, but to save it. And for Balthazar, that really shifts the emphasis or the gravity of... Um, of hope towards the affirmation of universalism. Um, so I don't, I don't even really sense that in Rooney. Rooney seems to take more the, the rhetorical position of, well, of course, I, I think it would be great, but who knows and no one can say, and we just don't know. Um, and so I, I don't even sense the sort of confidence there, which makes sense because if, if the whole framing is that it's either necessary and therefore negates all freedom, divine and human, or it's free, and so therefore negates all sort of epistemic, if I can use that word, epistemic confidence, which we might just call certainty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as I've read, as I've read Rooney, it seems that what he wants to say is that it is it is necessary that there is the possibility of a real and permanent damnation. That is necessary. If that doesn't happen then that means we have all kinds of other problems that develop with freedom on God's side and freedom on the human side. And we end up in Pelagianism and we end up in pantheism and, you know, all, all manner of chaos is let loose. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's uh wow. Yeah. That's, um, I suggest people read Peter Brown's uh, biography of Augustine, where, and especially the chapters on Pelagius, because it actually turns out Pelagius was very much a fire and brimstone preacher. He was very in favor of an eternal conscious torment uh, view of hell. And he was precisely because, um, well, he believed human beings had freedom and that they could make the responsible decision to accept or reject God. Now, I don't really want to do a two quoque. <laughs> and say back to Rooney, uh, if anyone sounds like the Pelagius, uh, uh, you know, advocate here, it's sort of your position, <laughs> which, which, which is uh, one that really does make the, make the decisive factor solely our own free choice. Now, I, I mean, not solely, I should say determinately, right? Because of course he's going to admit as most Christians do that grace is sufficiently supplied, etc. But, but look, it's just the plain fact, at least as I understand his view, and perhaps I'm wrong here, but it seems like the only thing that determines whether or not one is eternally damned or goes to heaven is their choice. That's exactly what Pelagius thought. 
And it's exactly what gave him the kind of fervor to react against Augustine's confessions, because when Augustine makes the remark, uh, give give all that I uh, that I, ha- I, mean, I should have had it off the top of my head. But he says something like, um, give me all that you require. In other words, even my assent, even my love, even my will to turn towards you is nothing but a gift from you. Uh, Pelagius perked up and said, well, hold on a second. What? That sounds to me like you're denying human freedom. Because it's like you need God to do something in order to even allow you or, or prompt you to, you know, uh, use your freedom correctly and love God the way you ought to. And so he reacted against that. So it was actually Pelagius's deep sense of human freedom and that human freedom as the determinative factor in one's ultimate destination, which gave him the grounds to very much support the justice and the righteousness of God sending some to hell for eternity. So I, did, I do think the, Pelagius, the Pelagianism accusation is a little bizarre in this context, to say the least. Um, but uh, so here's, here's the kind of, right, here's a few things I want to say about this necessity issue. Okay. For one thing, I just think in general, um, we ha- uh, Rooney, again, because he's sort of doing the analytic approach and he's looking for the truth maker that makes a certain proposition or belief or conviction unnecessarily true, he just very often seems to me to conflate epistemic necessity or confidence with, with like something like um, uh, metaphysical necessity, which is an impersonal law-like force that suppresses all of your own desires and, and free freedom and love, essentially, right? It seems like otherwise I don't understand what his polemic means. It seems like it, it hinges on this idea that uh, if you know that it's necessarily the case that all shall be saved— then you automatically must be assuming a metaphysical law that makes it impossible in some kind of almost external way that anyone could in any way waver or divert from the, the that path that leads to salvation. So there's a kind of elision at the very heart of, of his, uh, his argument, which is that someone's epistemic confidence or certainty has a corresponding objective external necessity like built into like the laws of nature or something i would i want to dispute that in the following way for one thing um (laughs) i mean if that were true let's start with the human side and then we'll get work into the more sort of the more uh deeper theological stuff i don't really see how for example prophecy would be possible if god tells us what some future act, uh, some future event is going to be, which includes free agents deciding to do things, but he tells us that ahead of time. Does that thereby, and, and so I know it. Does that mean that the act now that I know about, because I know it confidently from God Himself, is somehow unfree? You see what I'm saying? So, for example, in the Gospel of Mark, we all know in chapter 8, Jesus starts speaking about the necessity of his suffering, which is to come. Well, we also know from the gospel and from the first chapter of Acts that it wasn't like Jesus just hopped on the cross. He was put on there, right? And decisions mm-hmm. were made. And, you know, you got gospel of John talking about Pilate's decisions, right? He makes the decision eventually and et cetera, et cetera. There was a whole sort of, uh, you know, confluence of many different free, I would imagine, decisions 
rational decisions, in other words, decisions made for certain reasons, even if they're wrong or bad or faulty or erroneous. But Jesus is already starting to talk about in the Gospel of Mark three different times that he will, he must be handed over and he will be betrayed and he will be crucified and suffer. To which, right, Peter objects at one point and gets a stern rebuking. Mm-hmm. So how is that possible that Jesus could make known to those ahead of time and therefore they should have believed him? And maybe some of them really did. We don't know what everyone thought, right? Mm-hmm. How could it be possible that they know what will occur, which is also the result of future free acts? If, if their certainty, because Christ told me this is going to happen, even if it brings them anguish or they really don't want it to happen. If they were certain about that because they find God, they find Christ trustworthy. Um, if it were the case that you can't have epistemic confidence about a future outcome, without negating the freedom of that future outcome, then it seems like him actually telling them ahead of time that he must be, and the Greek does use the necessity language, he must be handed over, etc. Uh, it looks like that, that, would, uh, that would mean that what? The, the, the actors in the event to come weren't free? Right. You see, you see my point now, 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 some people will appeal to like, well, there's like this narrative or this sort of prophetic necessity that sort of this was the plan all along. And sort of this is this pattern and the Messiah is going to follow this, etc. Oh, fine. That's fine. But the point is simply and this is one I would make over and over and over again. We have to distinguish between different kinds of freedom and necessity. You can't speak as if freedom and necessity mean the same thing always and all the time. and They're always opposed. Because if that were the case, then every time God prophesies about future free events, it makes those events unfree, or you shouldn't really believe the uh, the prophecy with full confidence and certitude. Because if you do, then the truth maker there would somehow cancel out the freedom of the future events that you're told about, which is absurd. Right? So prophecy itself seems to be impossible. Like, in other words, Rooney seems to be throwing the pendulum so far in the opposition, the the abstract, absolute opposition between freedom and necessity, that it makes things like prophecy impossible. Well, that you know, when he uh, uh, talks about, you know, sort of this ultimate kind of indeterminate outcome, possible indeterminate outcome of creation, where we're all holding on to our loved ones in the eternal insane asylum, um, it seems a little bit indeterminate about, you know, that, that potentially this could go on forever. Maybe it doesn't go on forever. Uh, but wouldn't God know exactly. from the beginning whether or not it was going to go on forever? And why would God enter us into a situation in which heaven was this eternal visit to the spiritual insane asylum and where we're always wondering if our beloved are going to come back to us? Right. And Rooney, again, uh, you know, he's he's doing the thing where he says, well, you know, the church hasn't even said Judas is in hell. And that's just objectively true. The church has never said any actual individuals in hell. But nevertheless, in principle, it's possible that Judas is. Well, of course, some people disagree with him and they would say, no, it's been revealed that at least Judas is in hell, as well as all the angels. Right. That, that followed Satan, etc. Um, so here's here's the dilemma again, the kind of in, in, the, the uh, contradiction at the heart of all this, this sort of absolute freedom and necessity thing, because now all of a sudden it seems like Rooney's open to the possibility that maybe the church will eventually say it, he just he keeps saying uh, they just haven't said they haven't defined whether or not Judas is there, even though maybe he probably is or something. Well, but the, but it seems like 
um, Rooney's position has actually made it in principle impossible for the church to say that Judas did go to hell. Because if the church defines that Judas at least is in hell, or if the church defines that all the angels and the demons are in hell and will never be in any way sort of saved, well, then w- w- which is it? Do we know that for sure? And and therefore their actions, which keep them on Rooney's account perpetually in hell because they keep perpetually in their own freedom, rejecting God's grace to be saved, That because that's his account. It's not God's inflicting punishment. It's not even necessarily that there's a kind of like, I mean, the, the one common Thomas view is like there's there's like a anthropological reason would be that that the sort of the the soul is fixed after death or whatever. But I don't I don't hear him defending that very often. It's really just freedom defense, right? No, they perpetually mm-hmm. freely reject God. But if I know if the church say tomorrow says, well, we actually decided that yes, Judas is in hell for portraying uh, the Son of God. Um. Then it seems like Rooney has already decided and committing and and committing suicide, and committing suicide, right? And and it seems like Rooney has actually ruled out in principle that that's possible for the church, and yet he's he and yet his rhetoric so far is just well, the church hasn't defined it. But actually, what you're saying is the church can't define that because if they do, then you have to accept it with certitude. But if you if you know it, epistemic confidence, if you know that that Judas is in hell. You can't simultaneously hold that the reason why he's in hell is because because he's free, because then we would have the opposition between freedom and and certain necessary truths that he denies all all throughout. You see what I'm saying? So either Judas is free and perpetually rejects God, and that's what it means to be in hell. But then you could never know Judas is in hell because knowing it somehow makes it it cancels out his freedom. So you can't know necessarily mm-hmm. with, with certainty or we can know with certainty and the church could define that tomorrow, but then that would somehow on Rooney's account, it seems like that would cancel out hell being a, re, a perpetual result of our own freedom because and see, see, so this is the sort of dilemma that his at his framing gets us into, or we could do the same thing with the angels where, where you know, Satan and his angels Let's postulate for now, you know, and I don't want to get into this really, but let's just say they are in hell forever. And we know that it's been revealed to us this. Well, are they in hell forever as a result of their own rational nature, their free choice or not? On Rooney's account, it needs to be because hell is nothing but the perpetual free rejection of God's grace that even Satan's hell is that right. It's a result of his own stupid, deluded, perverted freedom. Mm-hmm. But then how can we know he's in hell without canceling out the freedom of his perpetual acts of rejection? So it looks so like you, you get into a quandary. You keep getting into a quandary. And the reason why is because in the polemical sort of spirit, we want to set up initially an absolute dis, uh, opposition between uh, uh, necessity and freedom. And if we know by necessity, like it's a certain truth, it's certain we're certain about it. If we know someone's outcome, somehow you've negated their freedom, right? Because it's like they can't do anything but end up in heaven. So it's useful against universalism for him to set things up that way. The problem is it starts to contradict his own view of hell, <laughs> because if he's going to do the free uh, free will defense of hell, mm-hmm. and that's also Satan's hell, then how can we know with certitude Satan is in hell? Wouldn't well, our no certitude cancel out his freedom? When it comes to like Satan and the angels and the his angels and the and Judas, you know, then there's the idea that they are cast into the you know the pit for for you know forever and forever and ever. Uh, that idea, 
But then once I started looking at that in the original Greek, that really is until the ages of the ages. Um, and, and when I was reading Origen, he had the idea that, of course, well, God is the God who brings the aeons or the ages into existence so that when they complete their when the aeons or the ages complete their purposes, God will finally be all in all. First Corinthians fifteen twenty eight. Mm-hmm. So yes, you could have all rational beings, whether angelic or human, thrown into um, perdition uh, until the end of the ages of the ages. But finally, when the ages have complete, completed their purpose, their given purpose is the raising children. It's a big children raising uh, factory, right. you might call it. Uh, at the end of the ages, when God's children raising uh, purposes have come to completion, God will finally be all in all. Now, that doesn't mean all of existence comes to an end, but it, as Origen said, it means that God is finally all in all and nobody is in an age anymore, that we have all transcended the ages and we are all with God in God's, in God's all in all. And once I begin to be able to see it that way, it helped me to understand the forever and ever language or eternal language that we sometimes run into. Yeah, it's uh, and actually I, I'll plug this right now. In, uh, in his review of That All Shall Be Saved, the Catholic historical theologian Trent Pomplin, a really brilliant guy, knows so much about medieval theology, philosophy, and early modern theology and philosophy, uh, Catholic as well. He, he makes, he has like the last page and a half of that review he considers the very plastic and flexible use of eternitas, even in Latin. Yeah, that is um, interesting. Um, that, but but the but the basic point is something like the one you were making there, which is that it's always a relative term. I mean, I was already reading, and I know this isn't going to do perhaps <laughs> the universalist side any favors, even though I'm not entirely convinced he was a fully universalist. But Eugenia was already saying John Scotus Eugenia, he's a ninth century Irish uh, theologian. He later had, you know, like Origen, he sort of had a checkered legacy, but very, very uh, influential, nevertheless, and really, really interesting thinker. But he was already noting uh, what you might call the relative uh, two senses of eternity in, in in the ninth century. He was saying, "Well, God alone is absolutely eternal," which is to say, not bound by any temporal intervals whatsoever. But anything created can be in various modes of eternitas, which is relative to another age. It can look like it's transcending it. So there's like layers or different sort of dimensions of temporality where on one level or one plane, if you're considering, say, the angels and how they exist, they look to you almost like eternal, like they transcend your time. They, they aren't confined by, like you are, by birth and death, and you can sort of chart out on this line. They're sort of above the line or on some other line. But relative mm-hmm. to yours, they are, they are eternal relative to your time, your tempus. Uh, and so anyway, the, the, but, but yeah, and uh, Pomplin actually gives a whole bunch of other examples where, where it's just like extremely flexible because it's, a, it's sort of primarily a relative term. Because all eternity means uh, for uh, very often is transcendent of and then what what layer of time like time or this time or that time this age that age so um, uh, and God alone is fully transcendent or if you look and say Maximus's discussions of theosis and deification mm-hmm. he says in ambiguum ten he says um, that Melchizedek who's sort of this model of theosis quote, transcends all time and every interval and is, and nothing is separate spatially or temporally 
from those who are deified, right? And so there's this sort of sense of, yeah, like you, you can do that kind of relative comparison. And are we speaking about an absolute eternity here? And even perpetuity, one event after another, which again seems to be the way Rooney is envisioning hell because it's a perpetual one event after another, one rejection after another, that is still temporal. That's still age bounded by a sort of age mentality. It might be, mm-hmm. it might transcend the one we currently live, but nevertheless, it's sequential. And so it must have duration. And so it sort of looks sort of timelike, right? So anyway, there's a whole bunch of stuff there you can get into. And it gets, again, once again, this whole discussion really can and should, I think, get a little more complex than, than what we've seen. But I, but I think back to the back to my point is that you can't say even on his own account that necessity and freedom are absolute contraries when you at least have one, perhaps two cases where they aren't. I, I, and by necessity, I mean holding certain truths to be necessarily the case. Now, I think what Rooney, Rooney might say as well that that's been revealed, but the, but the outcome itself wasn't predetermined. Right, Satan didn't have to fall, so it was a contingent fact. Well, fair enough, uh, but you know it with certainty, right? Because it's been revealed. If you mm-hmm. know it with certainty, and and so in in that sense, it has a necessity. And once again, we have to distinguish between kinds and degrees of necessity. If you know it with, in in that sense, it's necessarily the case. Why? Well, because it's been revealed that Satan is damned forever. And yet that's an outcome of his freedom and, and his perpetual rejection, etc. Okay, well then at least there's been one reconciliation of epistemic certainty and, and uh, rational freedom, namely in, in, on Rooney's account in the case of Satan himself, and perhaps of Judas if the church decides so. So anyway, there's there's those. So freedom and necessity, again, I have a hard time thinking we can simply just be content with. And so much of the rhetoric I see coming from Father Rooney seems to depend on this idea that if 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 something is free, it can't be known, right, with any kind of certainty. And if you do know something with certainty, then it can't be about something free. And so I think that that very much, because I don't know how else you could say, oh, well, you know, the confidence of saying that uh, all shall be saved necessarily would determine the outcome of everyone. And so they're so, so somehow no longer free and they're just going to be subject to their own, I guess, salvation um, in the end. And so you can't know. So he's talking about knowing, like a subjective knowing that something is the case. But my point is, finally, I'm getting to it here, that he already he already admits that there is such a thing as epistemic certainty about a contingent outcome uh, that's nevertheless an eschatological one, namely Satan's eternal perdition. So I don't see how you can hold against the universalist that it's automatically presumptuous uh, to be certain about the salvation of all, because that somehow contradicts the freedom of all, when you've already actually conceded that very thing, at least in one case. Uh, another point about freedom and necessity. You don't have to believe, contrary to what Rooney is saying about heart and others, you don't really have to believe that God, like, absolutely had to create the world. I'll, I'm not going to get into the whole discussion about, you know, the necessity of creation. There's a whole other thing. But I, I don't see why you have to hold that uh, because, for example, I'm thinking of Anselm of Canterbury, St. Anselm. He actually at one point says, um, and I don't think he holds necessarily to a, I don't really think he holds to the necessity of creation in the way some do, uh, maybe not even in the way David does. 
But he nevertheless does at one point compare God's act of creation as God taking on a monastic vow, which does then obligate him to follow through on these duties that he thereby takes on himself. So it's an interesting image because what Anselm is saying is, well, sure, there's a sort of absolute freedom with respect to God's creation. And then in in the context, it's about God saving the creation that's fallen, right? So to occur deus homo, he's trying to explain the necessity of the incarnation, etc. But his point is, well, okay, God is in, in, in an absolute sense free. He didn't have to create anything or whatever. But nevertheless, the very act of creating does introduce this necessity or obligation that God freely takes on which is why he had to do something about fallen creation. This is a similar line you can find in St. Irenaeus, you can find in St. Maximus. It's what Paul Blowers, the uh, Maximus scholar, calls, uh, quote, the, the, sublime, the view of sublime necessity, where, like Maximus, for example, has a passage where he says, uh, it was necessary, this is a quote, it was necessary, truly necessary that he who is by nature creator would also show himself to be the author of salvation. So once again, that's a pretty tight argument. It's a pretty tight argument, right? Because, <laughs> because in father Rumi seems to, to have some kind of concession, right? He, he said, I've heard him say before that he doesn't believe it would be like, right. Or I don't know that, that God would create a world where everyone was damned. Okay. Well, why not? Are you saying there's some kind of obligation on God's part that he he can't create a world where everyone just like after Adam's sin, everyone falls and and maybe even Christ comes, but just no one accepts him. No one freely chooses to respond to grace. Like what what exactly is the truth maker and Rooney's uh, conviction that God couldn't have done that? And whatever the truth maker is there would seem to violate the very thing he thinks that universalists violate when we say, you know, all will be saved. Well, that's kind of a, an issue that I have with uh, open theism is that if open theism is truly open, then it seems like it must be open to the possibility of the damnation of all, of a right. creation which is completely 100% fallen and never recovered. Yeah. And some seem to accept that, right? Because it could just be sort of a uh, unfortunate byproduct of you know the great working out of all things and the process, right? So, I mean, so uh, you know, it's just it's just what I'm trying to do is point to different places where clearly freedom and necessity are not just absolute contraries. Mm-hmm. So you can't you can't keep noting that. Well, you know, universalists, hard universalists, seem very confident that it's necessarily true that all shall be saved. Therefore, that must oppose freedom in every way. Therefore, we go down right into all the sort of uh, soup of heresies that we, we apparently fall into. Because look at all these I mean, all these cases where apparently freedom and necessity can go together just fine. Was God obligated to save a creation that has fallen? Well, a lot of saints and a lot of people in the tradition would say, yeah. How many, right? That's varied. That's mm-hmm. what we're talking about. Save at least some of them. At least some of them. I mean, yeah. that's the whole point of on the incarnation. It would be, I mean, the divine dilemma. The reason why it's even a dilemma for God. It wouldn't be a dilemma unless there was something that was abysmal, that was repugnant, and God allowing the entirety of, of uh, creation to, quote, as he says, slip into non-being. All right, so it's necessary can I say that now, right? It was necessary 
that God do something. And if it's necessary that God do something, even if it's just for one person or a handful or the small group or, or a bigger group or eventually all, why would it be wrong to say uh, of the thesis, all shall be saved is too presumptuous because it means God necessarily has to act to save them or whatever. Why would that be presumptuous, but it not be presumptuous to say, well, God had to do something and at least save someone. Both of them use necessity language. Mm -hmm. God had to do this. He was obliged, perhaps even if we're going to be strong. It was, I mean, Maximus language, it was truly necessary. And he repeats it necessary. I say that God showed that he's that right. So there's, so I don't, I don't really understand again. I don't understand how um, I, I think there's insufficient attention being paid to, well, when is it that we're allowed to say it's necessary for God to do something? And yet that doesn't contravene his freedom. And when is it that is that saying God must do something all of a sudden does contravene? And why would it be that just the quantity of people saved changes that? If you can, it seems it, somewhat arbitrary. Exactly, it seems arbitrary. If you can say God even just had to save someone, well, you said had, mm-hmm. and and if you don't think that contravenes his freedom for some reason, then why would it contravene his freedom if he does what he says he wants to do in First Timothy, save everyone? Right. Well, it seems like we're we're at a time now where I know when you know when Maximus was when Maximus was working and thinking through all of this, it was a difficult time to express oneself freely um, yeah. about one's ultimate conclusions with regard to this. Now, in the early centuries of the church, before things were um, before they had um, trials and doctrinal con- uh, doctrinal consensus, and Justinian came along and there was a period in the early Christianity where you could be like an origins time, uh, speculative, philosophical. There were different schools. Uh, so it seems to me like what's happening now is we're pushing back kind of towards a more original setting where we're beginning to have, be able to have these root level conversations at the reformation at the Protestant reformation that allowed some level of new conversation but now I think we're at another kind of reformation in which we are now getting able to freely kind of get at the root issues that were being discussed at the early centuries of the church. And, and it's a fascinating time because now it's not just scholars in ivory towers that have access to all of this information, but we've all got access to it now. Mm-hmm. And so this is a time, I think, of amazing and fruitful conversation. I think you're positioned really interestingly to be an important voice in this because you grew up in sort of the biblicist, uh, restorationist, uh, Bible, Bible, Bible believe in church kind of idea. And then now you have a PhD in uh, historical theology. And now you're sitting in the Catholic, uh, in a Catholic seat in the church. So being able to look at real, real seriously, look at tradition and how that works. And you've been able to make nuanced observations about how, well, tradition isn't always as static as you might think it is, which is not conversations you ever have at the Bible church, right. you know? <laughs> right, right. So you're kind of, you've kind of got this kaleidoscopic vision of things and have been able to, I think, uh, uh, in a really nuanced way, hold on to some of the greatest visions, early thinkers. And um, so I just, I really appreciate your scholarship. Uh, I want to have you back on and discuss uh, Maximus in in more detail. Um, uh, sometimes I think that, uh, you know, maybe 
David Bentley Hart is somehow carrying forward uh, Gregory of Nyssa uh, into the, you know, into the modern world again and his insights. And, you know, maybe you'll be you'll be uh, representing Maximus to us <laughs> in his insights. Uh, but it's just an exciting time. And I'm glad for your voice and your scholarship. And I uh, wish you well on your this book that's just come out, whatever writing projects you have in the future. And I think your children are fortunate to have uh, a father who cares about them, obviously, as much as you do, and who is able to present to them a spiritual father in Christ who, whose uh, sovereignty and foreknowledge uh, can make them feel confident in, in this world and in the world to come. Well, thank you, David. That's, that's a lot of very nice things to say. And um, yeah, it's, it's been a pleasure to be on, and uh, I look forward to uh, future conversations. All right. Well, we will wrap this one. Uh, we'll wrap this one up until we get to talk again. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David, or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.